Welcome to Grace Church. Those of you that are here and those that are watching uh, from many places around the world and a special welcome to uh, my wife and her mother who are watching from the nursing home this morning. This is uh, the first Sunday with after 66 years of marriage that my uh, mother-in-law will be without her husband. You are invited if you would like to on uh, Saturday at one o'clock, we will have a memorial service here for dad to uh, celebrate uh, 65 years of gospel ministry as a pastor, 66 years of marriage, 89 years of life, and most of all, Jesus Christ who makes every good thing possible in life, and we give him glory. Let's take our Bibles again and look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning as I continue to talk about what it means to be adequate in Jesus Christ. We have seen how we are inadequate, and only God can make us adequate in life. Last week we saw how he makes us adequate through the process of sanctification, this week we see that he makes us adequate for a distinct purpose, a purpose that bears upon the eternal destiny of the lost, a purpose that puts upon us a great responsibility for those who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. As I read this passage of scripture and thought of Paul's commitment to getting the gospel to lost people, it reminded me of words that God spoke to Ezekiel. Matter of fact, he spoke them twice to Ezekiel in both Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel 33. This is what God said to the prophet. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood will I require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. We have a great responsibility to bring the truth of God's word to people. Listen to Paul as he talks about that this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I hope you know what he's talking about by experience. The text raises some questions. The first question it raises is, how lost are the lost? And it answers that question. And then the second question is, when God makes us adequate to reach the lost, what does that look like in life? Last week we saw how he makes us adequate with the process of sanctification. But what does that look like in our life as he makes us adequate for the lost? That will be the major part of the message this morning as I answer that second question. But let me briefly answer the first one. How lost are the lost? Paul makes four statements about them. They are perishing, he says. They are lost, as some of the older translations say. The word simply indicates that people without Christ are in a state of ruin. It actually says this is where they are right now. They are perishing. They are dying. And when they do die, they will face another death, an eternal death. They are perishing and will eternally perish. The word does not mean that they will be extinguished. It doesn't have that idea at all. It sort of has the idea of, of taking a porcelain cup in your hand and throwing it on the pavement and seeing it smash into pieces. It is not destroyed. It is not distinct, extinct. It still exists. It just exists in a form for which it was not intended. And that is where lost people are. They are perishing. They're not living. They're dying every day. And without Christ, they will die forever. They will face an eternal loss of well-being. They are perishing, he says. Secondly, he says, the gospel is veiled. It is hidden to them. He had talked in chapter 3 about the unbelieving Jews who had a veil over their hearts. From Paul's point of view, the gospel is hid 
from sinners. They cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They are missing out on what is most wonderful and glorious in life and in eternity. They have a veil over their hearts. And thirdly, he tells us why. Their minds are blinded by Satan. That Satan has such powerful influence over them, keeping them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. This one who reveals God to us, they cannot see because Satan does not want them to see the glory of God. And then thirdly, he says, they don't believe. The blinding of Satan brings about the inability to believe the promise of the gospel. They have a veil that is over his heart, that their hearts. Now Paul is going to tell us from this point that God in his providence has chosen to use you and me, human instruments, to reach those who are under this fourfold description. Those who are lost, those to whom the gospel is hidden, those who are blinded by Satan, those who do not have faith to believe, God calls us to bring a message to them through which the Spirit of God can defeat Satan, can bring them out of darkness to light and cause them to see the glorious, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are not adequate for this task. We need the Spirit of God in our lives, working in us, changing us into the image of Christ from glory to glory to make us adequate. But as that, as that is happening, what does that look like? What does it look like to be adequate in reaching the lost for Jesus Christ? As I look at this text, I find that Paul had three displays of adequacy or three growing commitments in his life that were evident as the Spirit of God was transforming him into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The first one was a commitment to what I call persistence or perseverance. He simply says we don't lose heart. We don't lose courage, or as the older translations say very plainly, we don't faint. Yes, it's weary. I can hear my dad saying often, you may and will get weary in the way because you're, you're in a battle. You're battling sin, you're battling Satan, you're battling, battling the flesh, the world. You're in a battle, you get weary in the way. He said, you'll get weary in the way, but you'll never, don't ever get weary of the way. Because it's the right way, it's God's way, it's the narrow way, and it's the way that leads to eternal life. We don't lose heart. We understand 
the plight of the lost. They're perishing. They're blinded by Satan. They have a veil over their heart. They will go to hell forever and we will not quit. We dare not lose heart. And as I read those words, I see that Paul was encouraged to not lose heart by two things that he tells us about. He says, having this ministry, we don't lose heart. He says, I look at what God has given us, the ministry that he talked about, that he described in chapter 3, this new covenant ministry, a ministry of the Spirit, a ministry of life, a ministry of lasting glory, a ministry that results in the transformation of one's heart. He says, having this ministry, this stewardship that God has given us, this responsibility and this joy of bringing life to those who are lost, having this ministry, we don't lose heart. We will not quit because we understand the glory of the ministry that God has given to us. But then secondly, he says, by the mercy of God. It's not only this stewardship, this ministry that God has given us, but it's the mercy that we've experienced from God that we continue to experience from God. Paul simply saying that to the degree that God has shown and continues to show mercy to me, to that degree, I will not quit. I will not lose heart because of what God has done for me. What a powerful motivation in our lives to grow in our understanding of the mercy of God. You've heard me say this before, and you'll hear me say it many times over. But the more you understand your sinfulness, the greater you will appreciate the great salvation, the mercy that God has shown you in Christ. The night I came to Christ, I knew I was a rotten sinner deserving of hell. And I appreciated that mercy on September 10th, 1970. But now, 50 years later, I see my heart even more clearly. I see my evil even more clearly. I see my sin even much greater. And the mercy of God is magnified as I understand my sinfulness. Why do Christians quit? Why do they give up? Why do they give in to pressure? Why are they intimidated to silence? Why are we not talking to our friends and family and neighbors and people in life about the only message that can bring them out of darkness into light? Why are we silent? Why have we quit gospel ministry? Well, maybe what Paul says is not true in our life. We don't see 
this ministry, the glory of this new covenant ministry that we've received. There's nothing like it because there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And perhaps we don't appreciate that mercy that God has given us. We become accustomed. We're like that woman, that waitress that waited on us one morning after a motorcycle ride up Route 15 to Walden, New York. It's one of the most beautiful 15-mile roads. It goes up through the mountains, the reservoirs that feed New York City. It is just pristine wilderness. But there's this highway there that runs in and out through all of these bodies of water and in and out through the mountains. And we love riding that, just appreciating the beauty. And we were telling this waitress about our ride that morning. And she says, I hate that road. I got to take it every day to work. I hate that road. And we love that road because it's beautiful. And I would hope that if I were on it every day, I would not fail to see that it is just so beautiful. The beauty hasn't changed. The heart changes. What we saw initially in that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and that great magnificent mercy of God that doesn't change but our hearts do change Paul says I, I won't quit I am committed to persevere for the gospel of Christ because of this ministry that God has given me and because of this mercy. And I must say, as I thought about Paul's words, I'm sure the Calvinists would say that Paul was the first Calvinist. He was the first truly reformed theologian with a strong belief in God's sovereignty. And, and I, I might agree with that. But what I find striking about Paul's words is that along with his deep conviction about God's sovereignty and salvation, it does not keep him from accepting his responsibility to persevere, to make the gospel clear. He never adopts the attitude, well, you know, if I don't do it, God's going to save them anyway. No, his attitude is God's given me this ministry. He's given us this ministry. God's shown me this mercy. And this mercy is not just to be enjoyed. This mercy is to be shared. But thirdly, secondly, he not only had a commitment to persevere, but he had a commitment to absolute purity when it came to the word of God. I resist, he says, everything that is incompatible with truth. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. This 
message that we have is so important, it must be right. It must be God's message. It must be clear. It must be undiluted. And it must be accompanied by a life that, that coordinates with that, that supports it, and doesn't contradict it. When Paul is saying that the gospel is veiled to those who are lost, he's also saying, it's not because of me. If they don't hear the gospel and see the gospel and believe the gospel, it's not because I haven't given them the gospel in all of its power and clarity. It's not veiled because of me. And then he supports that we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways in three ways. He says we refuse to practice cunning. The word, Greek word for being crafty, you know, being slick, you know, able to get things done, uh, not always in the right way, but you get it done, sort of a pragmatist. You're unprincipled. You're like the Jesuits were at times. You know, the end justifies the means. So it doesn't matter how I get people to fill my church as long as I get people to fill my church. But Paul says we refuse to practice cunning. It is an interesting word because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word is often used in the book of Proverbs in a good way. That someone who fears the Lord is crafty. You know, he is, he's creative. He finds good ways to get things done, to find success in life. He's a crafty person. So Proverbs often uses the same word in a good sense. And I would say it's good to be crafty if your craftiness is girded by the fear of the Lord, by a worship of God, because then it'll, it'll always be honest, it'll always have integrity, it will always be honorable. But when we find it in the New Testament, it's normally with some devious intent. The chief priests and the scribes, they were cunning. They used ways to trick people, to capture people and to lead them down the wrong road. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the same word is used to describe Satan's methodology in life, that he will use any means without any moral basis, he will use any means to capture people and to keep them from Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, I have no hidden agenda. I don't manipulate people. 
I don't use words to control them for personal gain. I bring the clear, unfiltered, unaltered, undiluted word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was not Preflo Dollar. He was not Joel Osteen. Fine words, but words that mask and dilute the message of the gospel. He secondly says, or do I tamper with God's word? I don't falsify, adulterate, or change in any way the word of, of God. The communication of the gospel of God's word must be just that, a communication of God's word, not man's word. Some would say that one of Paul's mottos was found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. The Greek literally says it this way. Paul says, I will not go beyond what stands written. That everything about me is subject to the authority of Scripture. Not the authority of a denomination, not the authority of some book, not the authority of a pastor. The believers are told to submit to your elders. But you only submit to your elders as they submit to the authority of Scripture. And every believer needs to be like the Bereans, who when they heard Paul teach, from the Old Testament. They would go to the Old Testament scriptures and they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was actually consistent with the word of God. Paul was bound by scripture. He was not bound by a system of interpretation, though I'm sure he had a way that he understood the Bible should be interpreted. He didn't see the Bible as having some geographical restraint. You know, people in Africa and people in Dominican and people in the U.S., you know, they, they read the Bible differently. No, the Word of God is God's Word to all people in all times in all places. And it doesn't say different things to different people. But he was also concerned about his, the consistency of his life with his message. He says, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And as you listen to my message and you look at my life, let your conscience judge, is there a consistency there? 
all of us are capable of having lives that do not corroborate what we say we believe. And probably we all do at some point. That's why we live lives of repentance and seek God's forgiveness often. But I remember a pastor friend I had who pastored not real far from here. But don't try to figure out who he was, please. He had a large church, successful, and he's still my friend, and I love him, and I'm glad he is back in ministry today and doing very well. He was bright, articulate, engaging. One day after church, his elders asked to meet with him. One elder said, you know, while you were preaching, your entire message sounded so familiar, like I had heard you preach it before, but I had never heard you preach it before. So he Googled during the message, and he found out that his pastor was preaching somebody else's message almost word for word. Now, let me tell you, pastors do that all the time. Uh, hopefully, whenever you use somebody else's material, you give them credit. Like, if you ever heard me preach Psalm 90, then I will always say, I may sound a lot like Bruce Walking, because my understanding of this psalm is greatly influenced by my hearing him preach it and how it moved in my heart one day. But this pastor got up as he preached as if this was his work. And his elders put him under discipline, wouldn't let him preach, and made him go to counseling. Because to them it just wasn't you stole somebody's hard work. But you took credit for it. You wanted to look good without putting in the work that was necessary. You were proud. You were just filled with pride. And that's not what should accompany the message of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And eventually, they removed him from the pastorate, and he remained under discipline and remained submissive to their discipline and was restored by the grace of God and humbled by the grace of God and back in ministry today. Paul says, I want you to listen to my words and I commend myself to your conscience in the sight of God. Because God knows who I really am.
God makes us adequate. Who is adequate for this thing to be a, an aroma of life to those who believe and an aroma of death to those, those who don't believe? Who's adequate for this? And Paul will say, none of us. How can you persevere? How can you live a life and handle the word of God with integrity? How can you do that on your own? And the answer is you can't. You need that progressive work of the spirit of God in your life, constantly transforming you into the image of Christ. But then thirdly, he had this display, this commitment to preaching the word of God. Paul knew that lost humanity does not come to Christ without words. The words of the gospel. The life is necessary, but all the life can say is, maybe I can listen to you because I respect you. But just because somebody knows you're a faithful husband, a good father, a churchgoer, a moral, honest person, a good worker, That does not tell them their need of Christ and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes words. And so Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The content of Paul's preaching, preaching is summed up in Jesus Christ is Lord. He died, he rose again, he's exalted on high, he is Lord. And you are either a rebel or a servant. Of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ as Lord. And we, we are your servants and his. For Jesus sake. Jesus saves. We serve. And it's important to keep that distinction. And I love the way he talks about his preaching. Literally it says we keep on preaching. The idea is that over and over again, to those who are lost, to those who are blinded, to those to whom the gospel is hidden, to those who do not believe, how do you reach people like that? Paul says we keep on preaching. I don't know how many times I heard the gospel before. It broke through. And I saw the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know how the book came up with this statistic, but one, one person, uh, after doing surveys, says that the average person who comes to Christ has heard the gospel 5.6 times. I don't know how you hear it 0.6 at the time. But, but his 
point was that there is a process that takes place in evangelism. And Paul says, we just keep preaching. You say, well, I've got, I've got this loved one. They're so hard. What do I do? Keep praying and keep reminding them that Jesus Christ died, rose again, and he is Lord. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul had said the Jews, they require a sign. They say, show me something and prove it to me. And the Greeks, they require wisdom. They want some well-tuned philosophical argument to convince them. But Paul said to the Jews, Christ is the power of God. You want a sign? Here's the sign. Jesus died, rose again, is exalted on high. He's the evidence you need. And to the Greeks, Jesus is wisdom. A wisdom that he, goes, that he describes in 1 Corinthians 2 in such magnificent ways. A wisdom that the world just cannot understand that God in his wisdom would become a man, take on human flesh, take on the sin of the world, die the death that they deserve, rise from the dead, and then offer salvation to everyone who believed. Who would have concocted that story? The foolishness of man is wisdom of God. What's foolish to man? Paul says we just keep on preaching. We keep on Preaching. And why do we do that? What is his compulsion? What is his reason? Why do we keep on preaching Jesus Christ as Lord? He says simply because God has shined in our hearts. I've experienced that. The same God who in creation said, let light come. And light came out of darkness. That same God who by the powers of his word spoke to Paul's life one day and said, come out of that blindness and that lostness and that unbelief and look at the glory of Jesus Christ. See the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, God has shown in my heart. That's why. What other reason do I need? Again, I remind you what D. James Kennedy said. After God saved him, the rest of his life was simply, P.S. Thank you. We say thank you, and one of the best ways to say thank you is to tell someone else about the mercy that you've received. We began the series asking the question, who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate for a ministry that is designed to rescue people from eternal damnation? Who is adequate to be this savior of life for life and death to death? Who is adequate? And Paul simply says, none of us, but God makes us adequate. 
And as he makes us adequate, we don't have to lose heart. We can persevere in ministry for the Lord. And we can be faithful to the truth, the undiluted truth of God's word. And we can be faithful in bringing this word of life. This word of salvation. Steve mentioned that uh, our brother, who was not only our brother, he was the best of friends to us, but also a brother in Christ. When we were with him the day before he died, we were singing and singing hymns, quoting scripture. I was talking a little bit about John Piper's uh, article that David Paulison had added to on Don't Waste Your Cancer. And Jim at that point could not talk. He could just grunt a little bit. I don't know, maybe a tumor pressing against his larynx, but you know, he was just covered with tumors throughout his chest. And he could hardly breathe, could hardly talk. But he forced out enough words for us to understand what he was saying. As, as I mentioned, John Piper, who said that cancer cannot win over a believer. Jim said, cancer cannot win. Because he won. Death cannot win because he won. Let's love him and live for him and serve him. And tell others that are lost and blind and captured by Satan. There is a wonderful, loving Savior who is also Lord. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we rejoice in the great victory that Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection over sin, over Satan, and over that great enemy, death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Christ is risen. He has conquered. He has won. Father, if there's one here this morning, anyone in the, who's watching today who has not surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, may they do that right now. Right now, wherever you are, if you have never surrendered to this wonderful, sweet, powerful Savior. And tell him right now, I repent of my sin. I surrender. I believe that you died for me and rose again. And I surrender to Jesus Christ as my Lord. May many today, Father, come 
to know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.